Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, we at Trammell Crow encouraged all our employees to take their laptops home. And Saturday, some of us split the company into two groups. One group was going to come in for a week, and the other group for a week. We are going to rotate. We did that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we determined we're all working from home. So raise your hand if Friday, March 13th, you went into the office, and then you didn't come back for a, a few months or more. Okay, bunch of hands. It was spectacularly abrupt, this transition to remote work. Um, the, the reality is people have been talking about and debating remote work for my entire lifetime. Hello and welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, you'll hear a replay of our March 8th Market Matters event on the state of the office market with insights from Granite Properties CEO Michael Dardick and Trammell Crow Company President of Eastern Operations Adam Sapphire. The office environment has been one of the hottest topics within commercial real estate since the start of the pandemic, and Michael and Adam join moderator Christine Perez of DCEO to discuss their observations of how the market has progressed in the years since, the impact of remote and hybrid work, and what the future holds. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to recognize our Market Matters sponsors, Grant Thornton, DPR Construction, Global Pro, and DCEO. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the show if you're joining us for the first time. Check us out on YouTube for full-length videos and clips from our events and programs, including this one. And follow us on social media. You'll find links to everything in the show notes or blog page for this episode. Now, here's a replay of Market Matters, State of the Office Market, right here on TrackCast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our first uh, Market Matters of the Year for 2023. First and foremost, this couldn't happen without our generous sponsors, Grant Thornton, DCEO, DPR Construction, and Global Pro. Thank you, guys. Trek's mission is to cultivate relationships in the commercial real estate industry, to catalyze community investment, influence public policy, propel careers, and develop the leaders of tomorrow. We believe relationships are the lifeblood of career success, community investment, and civil responsibility. Before we get into today's program, I have a couple of quick announcements. The Trek Community Investors has just launched uh, DCP 2.0, and we had our first meeting yesterday afternoon. We are still looking for uh, folks that are interested in playing a role in the DCP 2.0, anything from underwriting the nonprofits that we'll be interviewing to uh, being project managers on the projects in the future. So if that intrigues you, please get with uh, Celestia and you can learn more about it. 
Leadership and alumni will be holding their first program of the year, March 22nd. If you are a graduate of the ALC classes, look for more details in your email and join us for a great relaunch of the Leadership Alumni Program. We are currently seeking both mentors and mentees for this year's mentorship program. Applications are live on the website, so please go on and activate uh, or speak to the Trek staff today if you're interested. As you've probably seen, Dallas City Council elections are in full swing. The Trek PAC is currently in the process of interviewing candidates for all Dallas City Council races and DISD uh, District two, Place 2 candidates. Uh, interviews begin this afternoon and continue through the rest of the month. I encourage everyone to learn more about uh, and consider sponsoring the Trek PAC and the important work we do on behalf of the commercial real estate industry here in Dallas. Finally, be sure to circle September 14th on your calendar as it will be Fight Night 34. There are still a, lim a limited number of sponsorship opportunities, uh, so uh, please give that consideration. Now let's get, today, get to today's program. I'd like to introduce this year's chair of Trek Programs Committee, Bill Brokaw, to introduce today's speakers. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate your leadership as chairman-elect for Trek this year, and uh, we'd like to welcome you to the first Market Matters of 2023 uh, series, and we have a great program here today. We kicked off our programs this year uh, in January with uh, a visit with Tom Gillardi, uh, Dallas Stars owner. It was a great success, and we look forward to today. We've got a great lineup to talk about the state of the office market with Christine Perez, Michael Dardick, and Adam Sapphire. So let's kick it off. I do want to thank our sponsors once again. They're very important to us. Um, Grant Thornton, our series sponsor, led by Arena Tariq, DCEO, our media partner, Christine Perez, and DPR Construction, our event sponsor, Kyle L., I think. <laughs> And then Global Pro, our speaker sponsor, Rob Bulby. <clears throat> so many sponsorships still available. We have a few more series uh, throughout the year. We've got a special one in May. Can't announce it just yet, but it will be coming. And I think you will enjoy that. Um, okay, let's introduce our folks today. Come on up. Christine Perez, our moderator. Christine is the editor of DCEO the business title of D Magazine Partners in Dallas. She also oversees DCEO online site and its real estate and healthcare news verticals, along with Dallas 500. A national award-winning journalist, she has covered the North Texas market since 2000. Christine is a downtown Dallas resident and went car-free in 2018. She received her degree in journalism from University of Minnesota. Our uh, first panelist tonight is, or today is Michael Dardick. Michael Dardick is a founding partner and CEO of Granite Properties. Granite Properties is a privately held commercial real estate investment and management company with offices in Atlanta, Dallas, Denver, Houston, and LA. 
Since 1991, Granite Properties has acquired or developed almost 30 million square feet of commercial real estate. And Michael is a graduate of the University of Missouri with a degree in finance. Our second panelist is Adam Sapphire with Trammell Crow Company. Adam joined the Houston office development team in 2005 with Trammell Crow Company, moved to Dallas in 2010 to lead all product types, took a regional role and joined the firm's investment committee and executive committee in 2012 and is currently responsible for the 11 offices which he serves as president of Eastern Operations. Adam is a graduate of Pomona College with a degree in economics and received an MBA from University of Virginia. Let's welcome Christine, Michael, and Adam. It's for you. It's for you. All right, you two, uh, you two figure out where you're sitting. Got that all worked out? Everybody has their water? Okay. All right. Um, thank you, Bill, uh, and thank you, Mike, and to all of you for joining us this morning as we talk about the North Texas office market with two of the very best in the business. Um, please note that we will be saving a few minutes at the end for audience Q&A if we don't get to something that's on your mind. But also, uh, Michael has a plane to catch and Adam has a meeting to get to, so we're going to make sure they get out of here on time. Um, DCEO is proud to be a longtime uh, sponsor of the Real Estate Council. We think uh, that what the, the work the organization does is so critical to our city, and Linda McMahon and her team have done a, done a profound job of uh, making our, our city better. And um, um, you will note that at your table you have our latest issue of DCEO that includes our power brokers list and, uh, and some more and our real estate annual. So. Uh, real estate is, is uh, well, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but anyway, um, uh, coverage beat for us. So we have a lot to get to this morning, though, so let's just jump right into it. I'm looking at my time, 8.07, perfect. All right. Um, all right, so let's start, guys, with getting a general market overview from the two of you. What are you seeing in terms of tenant activity and deal flow? Where is demand coming from? What's happening with urban and suburban uh, migration? And how does DFW compare to markets outside of Texas? So just kind of a, a broad look. Adam, you're, you're nearest and dearest to me, so maybe not dearest, but you're nearest. <laughs> so let's start with you. Well, I won't take your dearest to me. Um, <laughs> thanks, Christine. Um, first, thanks, Trek, for hosting this. Great venue, and thank all of you for showing up. This is a really exciting. I'm uh, honored to be up here with Christine. Christine, you're a world-class writer, and we really appreciate how you cover the industry. And Michael's one of the most prolific office developers in the country, and um, I, I really admire what you do in and out of the office for North Texas, so, so really just an honor to be here. As it relates to the market, uh, a couple of themes, and maybe I'll share some themes that uh, we're seeing at Trim Crow across the country. Tenants are taking less space. Uh, I think that's not a surprise uh, for most of you in the room. But it is a reality, and the question is, um, you know, what's going to happen going forward with that trend? If we looked at the numbers to that for the country, um, tenants, the average size of the lease that tenants did across the U.S. in 2022 was 21% smaller than pre-pandemic in 18 or 19. 2018 and 2019 were pretty comparable years for office absorption for the country. Um, so... The, the tenants are clearly taking less space. The good news for last year was more leases were signed, about 14% more for the country, but the net effect was still 9% less space was absorbed. Um, so that, that's, that's one reality. 
another reality is that the flight to quality that we've all seen for our whole careers, there's always been a flight to quality, right? At every, at every point in the cycle, um, we, we feel like that's strengthening and it's a bit um, uh, more acute right now coming out of COVID. So some anecdotes to that would be, if you looked at buildings built in the last cycle, so after the Great Recession, every metric is better for those buildings. Those buildings, which we're just gonna call newer buildings, higher quality. Um, so the vacancies are a lot less in those buildings. If you come to Dallas, the vacancies in um, the newer vintage buildings is about 9%. That's less than half the vacancy for the overall market. When you look at um, through COVID, one of the things I think most interesting through COVID, the only vintage that had positive net absorption across the country every quarter through COVID was the newer buildings. Um, rental rates are higher. Um, class top tier, what we call top tier buildings, raised rates about 4% each year in 21 and 22. The rest of the market decreased rates about 3% each year. So however you look at it, there's, there's um, uh, a flight, flight to quality. Some things that I think are interesting that have happened in North Texas that are great for the industry are um, that we converted on new construction to net rates. So I worked in, in Houston before the Great Recession. There were gross rates, and we converted then to, from gross to net. When I came to Dallas at the beginning of 2010, we were gross plus E for pretty much all markets. So we had a project called Legacy Circle. It competed with uh, Granite Park. We leased that up as gross plus E right at the beginning of the, the last cycle. A couple years later, a block down the street, we had another project called Legacy Tower, and we asked net rates, and the market converted in that time. And the reason I think that's really important is when we say the tenants required to pay the operating expenses, we're all estimating what those are gonna be in a new building. In the old way that we did it, if there was what we call slippage, then the landlord, or let's say the, the taxes or whatever is more expensive than we thought, and the expenses are more, the landlord's at risk for that. So by going to net, the investor and the landlord and developer have more surety of what their economic return's gonna be, and I think that's really good for the investment market um, here in Dallas long term. The other thing I'd say that's a game changer is tenants are uh, simply willing to pay higher rates for new construction. And um, there was a, a very well-known broker, who I will not say who it was, but when we had that Legacy Tower project, he said, hey, there's no way you're gonna hit your pro forma because 30 gross plus E is just the cap up in Legacy. It's never been over that, never going over it, you're toast. And when you look at the market today, there's deals being done uh, you know, at, at twice those rates or more. So I think that's been really helpful. I'll, I'll um, pause with saying what I, where, where I think projects have been the most successful in the office market, Dallas and everywhere, are being the most successful and will be the most successful are projects that are magnets for their employees. So there's a CB broker in Chicago named Lisa Konechka. She was the first one I heard use this phrase where office buildings need to draw their employees in. They need to be a magnet for space. And I think that's what Michael's trying to do with all his projects at Granite. It's surely what Trammell Crow Company is trying to do. And um, I think there's nothing new there. It's just that there's just gonna be a lot more focus on exactly that. Is that all you had to say? That's it. <laughs> I, I agree with Adam. <laughs> no, no. First of all, I love Linda, I love track. Been around the organization for a long time, doing amazing stuff for this city. And when you look at the 20, 30 year trajectory, it's kind of amazing. And, and all you guys are members supporting it. So thanks, thanks for having us. Um, I do agree with almost everything. I, I would say a couple things. First of all, 
you got to think about, you know, wh what is the time you're sitting in and therefore is what your perspective is. And so, you know, we went through a worldwide pandemic. We have a global war going on in Ukraine. Uh, you know, energy prices went crazy. We didn't know if we'd have enough energy and what the cost would be. Inflation's out of control. Hadn't been that way for 45, 50 years. Fed raised, raised rates faster than they ever had. Kind of hard to feel like you're in a party mode, right? And so you, you do have to, real estate's a long-term asset. So I think you're gonna hear some things from Adam and I today that are probably challenges in the current environment, uh, and which ones are cyclical and which ones are systemic, right? And so you've got some big trends going on. You certainly have capital markets disruption that is a huge, we're a, we're a huge user of capital in our industry, uh, capital intensive business, and so interest rates, capital availability, is a big, big deal. Um, construction costs has been going bonkers for a while, which is a reflection of inflation. Um, and then you've got, you know, just the malaise in the economy that's been, uh, the conjecture is where are we in the economy because of what the Fed has done so quickly. And frankly, I've been doing this a long time. I've never seen the Fed raise rates that fast. We've certainly gone through tightening periods, but it's been uh, it's extraordinary how fast it's gone. So. You have to take that context when we talk about things. And uh, for sure, work from home is something that never really existed. I mean, we had remote work, we had flex things, but it wasn't the way it was now. And I, I think we're in this interesting time, and I know we're gonna get to work from home, so I don't wanna go too much. Uh, but you know, uh, big corporations and small versus medium size are behaving very, very differently. Um, you know, I, what we're really seeing is our small and medium sized customers, which are and this gets to some of your stats, they're the majority of the numbers of customers and not the majority of the square footage. But those small and medium guys have been in the office, they've been in the office four to five days a week, their space is exactly the same as it was, and, and there's really pretty good deal activity. I'm looking at Kim because we compete with her and I know she knows this. Um, you know, there's really good deal activity on the small and medium size. What's changed significantly, and, and Dallas is a microcosm, I would say the same thing about uh, Midtown or some of these other great suburban markets, um, the big deal flow has really gone away. And it's gone away primarily in the suburbs, although we're starting to see it bubble back up just a little bit. Um, you're seeing a little more in that next urban market, so uptown or midtown in Atlanta, where there's still bigger deals. And that's because they have long lead time. Mm -hmm. I and mean, if you're talking about a 150, 200,000 foot deal, you're really doing two and three year planning, so you have no choice but to be in the market. Um, so that is a difference, is the big deal activity is definitely down. Um, for all of you that look at deal sheets, you know, you've gone from 10 million square feet of prospects to four, so it's real. Um, some of this is really just a reaction to the economy, uh, just like our business is affected by capital, so is all of our customers' businesses in terms of growing or not growing. But if you step away from the micro, um, I would tell you, uh, Robert Jimenez runs our real estate group, and he's got a lot of good data just from running all of our buildings. You know, the, the, the term of a lease, if you go back to 19 versus 22, it's down 5 or 10%. So the thought that everybody's doing two or three-year leases just doesn't play out in the data. Uh, I think some of that is there's more three-year leases, but because TIs hire, a lot of people are saying, just give me a longer-term lease and amortize it, and it weighs out. Same thing on renewals, it's five to 10% shorter term. Um, again, I mentioned from a square footage standpoint, really a bifurcated market. Small and medium sized customers are really pretty much the same size. When you think about trying to squeeze out 20 to 25% of your space, which all of the big guys are doing that, 
Number one, you have to have numbers, right? Because you're doing averages of how many people are going to be in the office at any time. And then number two, you got to spend on technology and furniture and layout to make it happen. So it's really the bigger companies are doing that. I think what's going to be interesting, and there's, do, do not take this as a hope note that this is going to turn around, because I don't think it will. I think the, the, the work from home impact on how much people will be in the office, in our opinion, is a long-term headwind. Um, but you know, we've, we've tried shared desking three or four or five times. Hoteling, there are all kinds of different names for those you've been in the business a long time. It's never stuck. I'm not saying it will not stick this time, so don't, it, this isn't a hopeful comment. I would just tell you, factually, people have not enjoyed sharing a desk in the past, and the only way you get to that 20 to 25% is sharing a desk. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I just think really what we're dealing with right now, and we're gonna, it's gonna flow through everything, is two big things. One's cyclical, which is capital costs, interest rates, and one is systemic, which is the changing office environment. We'll get back to our conversation with Michael and Adam in a moment, but first I'd like to tell you more about our Market Matters series sponsor, Grant Thornton. Grant Thornton is one of the country's largest audit, tax, and advisory firms. With a commitment to people and a long track record of delivering quality results, the firm lives by its mission to make business more personal and build trust into every result. Grant Thornton is also home to 8,000 problem solvers, working from almost 50 offices nationwide, and for this firm, how they serve matters as much as what they do. Go to grantthornton.com to learn more. Now, let's get back to the show. Excellent points. Um, at DE, we still have our two floors. Everybody still has their same desk. We're in the office three or four uh, days a week. Uh, nothing's changed at all, so we fit right into that. Um, now we do have right from home days on Friday. So, Christine, can I, I forgot to mention about yeah. migration. So, you, you know, if you look at any site selection book, the last 10 years, Grant, uh, Texas has been number one or two in the country for big corporate relocations. Um, if you looked at 22, for all the companies that moved to Texas, 45% of them came to DFW. So we are winning even inside Texas. Texas is winning overall for corporate relocations and DFW is winning within Texas. About 10% of those were in the city of Dallas. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with if you're a really, really large firm, you're doing a corporate campus and that means you're out in the suburbs, which is how that balances out a little bit. Um, the other interesting thing, and I don't, Bill Puckett's probably not here, but a good friend of ours who probably is the king of the legal deals, when we think about urban migration, you know, finance and legal is really a large part of your urban tenant base. Um, he was just telling us the other day, in the last several years, uh, 27 law firms moved to Dallas, 25 of them picked uptown. Mm -hmm. So I think you are seeing urban migration from certain industries, finance and legal. Yeah. Um, one other factoid I saw that just blew me away is that Texas population growth has grown at two times the nation for a century. For a century, Texas has grown at two times the nation. And where this relates to migration is the last decade, you know, uh, population growth is births over deaths and migration. And the last decade, 50% of that growth has been migration. So it's been a big deal for our market relocation activity. Glad to be here, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk just a little bit more about uh, return to office. Would love to know how your firms are uh, handling this work from home, hybrid, back to the office mindset, how it's affecting um, uh, productivity and growth of team members, 
and what impact it's having on the demand for office space. We already, you already said, Adam, that uh, people are taking 25% smaller offices. Uh, can, can you add some context? Let me go again. Yes, please. Um, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th of March, 2020, we at Trammell Crow encouraged all our employees to take their laptops home. And Saturday, some of us split the company into two groups. One group was going to come in for a week, and the other group for a week. We we're going to rotate. We did that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we determined we're all working from home. So raise your hand if Friday, March 13th, you went into the office, and then you didn't come back for a, a few months or more. Okay, bunch of hands. It was spectacularly abrupt, this transition to remote work. Um, the, the reality is people have been talking about and debating remote work for my entire lifetime. And I don't think that's really been in the conversation much. It's been more about how many days, is three days the right amount, or Friday from home, or whatever. But I'm going to take just a second here to go back in time uh, to talk about remote work's history. So in 1972, there was a NASA engineer named Jack Niles. He uh, coined the phrase telecommuting. He started working on this big, complex NASA communication system from afar, and you could argue that was the beginning of the conversation. In 1979, there was a very well-read article by a guy named Frank Schiff in the Washington Post titled, Working from Home Can Save Gasoline. <laughs> so think about all the things that we talk about with working from home, and when it started, that was one conversation. Uh, and in that, by the way, he coined the phrase flex space. Um, in that same year, 1979, I believe the real pioneer of, of remote work from the corporate side was IBM. They had this big mainframe in Silicon Valley that they wanted to relieve some pressure on. They wanted to relieve pressure on a computer, right? So same year as the gasoline comment, they had an experiment. They went to five employees and put these green screen terminals in their homes to relieve pressure on this computer. And it worked, and it was productive. And by 1983, they had 2,000 employees working remote. And in 2009, there was a report saying that 40% of their 386,000 employees in 173 countries were working remotely. So they showed they were in. And then in 2017, they made news demanding thousands of employees come back to the office if they wanted to stay at the company. And in that time frame, Yahoo, who I believe was another one of the big pioneers, made a lot of news in 2013 when Marissa Mayer, a CEO who had come from Google, banned remote work. And Yahoo was one that a few years earlier said everyone can work from all for, forever. Okay? So that that's, was a while ago. If you look at today, I don't know if anybody read yesterday, there was an article on Salesforce COO saying they've looked at the data, their employees are less productive working from home. They are now going to require their sales and service people to come in, uh, I think it was four days a week. Last week, the journal had an article on USAA down in San Antonio saying a lot of their people are going to need to come in three days a week. Amazon's been out with that three-day-a-week comment. I think Disney's at four. So we can talk about how many days, but I, I think there's really just an evolution of the conversation. Um, when you look at the data of just where we are today as a country, there's a company called Castle Systems that secures space, so they track their fobs coming in. The country for their buildings, which is a lot, uh, is back in a little less than half of what we were in 2019. Dallas, Houston, Austin, Texas is a little more than half. 
but still a long way from where we were pre-pandemic. Trammell Crow, I, I maybe I should ask table 10, I'd, I'd say we're the same as we were in terms of the way we work um, pre-pandemic, and we have been for, I don't wanna say years, but probably at least over a year. Um, so when I think about what you do, what's the function, and how are you most productive, if you're personally productive, you're talking about writing from home, if, if you have a job where you, you just need to focus and, and work by yourself, I think it could be argued that if you come into the office, you could be less productive, because everybody else is a distraction. If collaboration and teamwork's important, so call that proximity productivity, if your productivity is gonna go up, in my opinion, because of those two things primarily, collaboration and, and learning, because you're proximate to others, then you're gonna be better off in the office. And looking at this crowd and knowing some of you, I think you're all gonna be more productive in the office because you collaborate and you wanna learn and you wanna teach others. Um, so when um, we think about, hey, where are we going, some of the things we can look at is we can look abroad to Europe and Asia. They're back in the office more than we are compared to before the pandemic. There's, there's reasons like smaller homes, shorter commutes, that collaborative um, culture that, that they may have. So I believe we're still trending slowly. We're gonna keep coming back into the office. Um, but as, as we think about who, who's best to be working from home, I'd think about what do they do, what industry they're in. And I'll, I'll end with, this is, this is not, by the way, nothing I'm saying is Trammell Crow company talking. These are just all my personal views. M my belief is from watching what happened during the dot-com bubble bursting, and then both from Houston and Dallas, because I kind of transitioned through the Great Recession, this, I don't want to say silver lining. If there's a downturn that is mo worse than most people think, and I believe there will be a downturn worse than most people think, I believe there will be a lot more people coming back into the office, a reversion to the mean, so to speak, and, um, and, and we'll see. I think that's the only thing I can think of that's gonna be a real driver to move the needle on how many people come back into the office is, is um, that employee, for a variety of reasons, wanting to come back in more. Hmm. What are your thoughts, Michael? Uh, that was great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, um, first of all, we don't know the answer to this question at all. And, and honestly, it has been taxing to daily talk about this for the last 18 months. And we're going to daily talk about it. For, we're going to negotiate this every day for the next four years while we figure it out. Uh, our customers don't know the answer to this. Um, but I, I would say you've got kind of two competing forces here. You've got what I'll call technology. Uh, there's a lot of layers of that, which would... Uh, submit, you can be productive from anywhere, uh, versus what I'll call anthropology, which is the human animal for 5,000 years has been gathering around a fire because we're biologically driven to social interactions that not only cause meaning for us, it's how you like make a wheel, you know, 5,000 years ago by, you know, collaborating with somebody else, right? Um, so I think you've got these two competing forces. Um, there's a lot of noise in between. Uh, what I would say is this, is if you're in the production side of our business, Adam and I have been living in the hybrid world for 20 years, right? And instead of working from home, we were working from an airport, we were working from a Starbucks, we were work wherever we were on the road, we were in between meetings, and so we stayed uptown or, or up north in between our meetings because technology allowed us to do it then and you were productive. Uh, we still had an office, uh, 
but we, we only used it part of the time. So um, I actually, you know, we, we work really hard to inspire customers to flourish, and I really feel for them, honestly. They're really struggling with what is the right thing to do. I have yet to see, everybody asks the question about productivity. Honestly, I've yet to see somebody have an actual study that you could rely on that measures the productivity. And it, maybe it's out there, and I just haven't seen it, but people talk about productivity. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, my generation, you manage by seeing people and walking around, and so did it feel productive? And then you have a younger generation that, you know, keystrokes, they can decide what they're doing, and is that productive? Um, so the net-net of this whole thing is, my opinion is, there is a middle ground between technology and anthropology. And to your point, you know, the interactions of mentoring and collaboration and the serendipity of innovation, where you really make money is by creating value and solving problems quickly. Um, and, and this is a complete guess, because we don't know, but in talking to our customers, it does feel like it's gonna shake out to plus or minus three or four days in, plus or minus one or two days out. But I think the trickier part is, how does that work? And, and what I like to describe to people, because this is the challenge our customers are dealing with. The, the supply chain logistics industry has been around 10 or 15 years, right? That is an entire industry to figure out how to be efficient moving a box, okay? An inanimate object, we're gonna take 15 years with technology to figure out how to be efficient to have that box in the right place at the right time. Well, now we're trying to do that with a human animal that interacts with other human animals. It's a really difficult equation. Yeah. And so a couple of examples that are just little problems where you say, oh, let's just let anybody come in at any time they want. Well, if Sam, Sally and Billy need to work together and they're not in together, well, that doesn't work, right? That's a little bit of a duh, okay? Okay, well, let's have our finance and investments and accounting group and tell them you all be in together because you work together largely. Well, maybe we have a senior exec in finance, a female, that is mentoring a bunch of females in other groups that aren't there. Well, okay, we lost that mentoring that could go on. So there, there's, a, there's a million permutations of how it's hard to do this supply chain thing. I think it's one of the things you're seeing now that I do find fascinating is these really big companies have, a lot of them have settled on the Tuesday through Thursday. Okay, be, everybody be in the office Tuesday through Thursday. And what they're solving for is this, have everybody around. The other thing we all know is, I don't want to go to the office if 20% of the people are there on Tuesday. And I happen to pick Tuesday, but on Wednesday, 80%. You, you want to be around the energy of people and the ideas and the serendipity. Uh, well, the Tuesday through Friday is interesting to me. I, I understand how it makes the logistics problem simple. But if we're really dealing with flexibility to help the human animal, what if my spouse has dialysis on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I really want to be in the office on Mondays and Fridays? Well, your Tuesday through Thursday thing isn't really flexible for me. So it's a long way of saying I think this is a really complicated problem. I think it's going to take a long time to settle out. I do think the net-net is a 10, 15, 20% long-term headwind. I think another way to think about that is, remember, there is population and job growth annually. So if this takes five to seven years to roll out 20%, how much job growth will offset that? Again, I'm not trying to be a homer about office and that this isn't going to matter, because I think it does matter. Uh, the other thing I would say is it plays out really differently by size of firm. Uh, you asked what we did as a firm. We did the same as you. We went home in one day, and honestly, I was... I called the head of our IT after about a week, and I'm like, all right, I'm sorry that I've been bitching the last five years if you've been spending a million bucks a year because 
Like you flipped a switch and we were going, we were working. Like it's been phenomenal, right? And we could work. Mm -hmm. And it, now remember, in that first 90 days, it was literally triage being in the emergency room because none of us knew what the hell's going on in the world and what's going on in our businesses. And so, you know, you'd be on your morning call with your team, like what are we doing? Everybody would jam through meetings all day long. You'd get on your end of the day call and say, what happened today? Like it was literally like being in military, which I've never been in, but you're literally daily planning. After about 90 days, people were, it was amazing what we accomplished, but we were pretty wore out. And we, we got back to the office pretty quickly to what we'd normally been. Um, today, you'd ask what the policy is. Today, we have a, a one day a week. You can choose to work wherever you want to work from. You do it with your manager. We're not, we don't have some corporate, you know, what group's got to be around. Um, it seems to work for people. Um, I do think different jobs are different, right? Everybody immediately goes to the accountant and say, well, accountants can work anywhere. They stare at their screen all day long. And there's an element of that that's true. Um, I like to believe that our accounting group actually adds value to our business because they know the people in investments and they know the people in operations. And when we have a problem with a customer or with an investor and we're trying to solve the problem, they understand our business and so they do a better job of solving the problem, right? And, and I've had this conversation with our accounting department. Um, guys, if you think you're a commodity, I don't think you're a commodity, but if you think you're a commodity, be careful, because Business 101 is get the cheapest, highest quality source for your commodity, and that may be outsourcing, not remote work, right? And so, it, it, and by the way, there are some big firms certainly thinking about their accounting departments, I think CB is one of them, uh, of moving that outside the firm. And so, it's a long way of saying, I think this is messy, um, it's going to be interesting. We'll legislate it daily, and in five years, we'll know how it played out. Yeah, it's hey, really interesting. Christine, can yeah, I just comment on that? So I thought that was interesting you were talking about. You haven't seen a study on the productivity, right? And I, I just think of the word productivity as the most important word in this whole conversation. And it feels like every company is trying to declare their belief of productivity based on whether they think they're more productive in the office or out of the office. And so I think there's a couple facts, um, I believe, like technology's great from home, it's better in the office. It should be cheaper, faster, more reliable, higher bandwidth for your Wi-Fi, whatever the metrics are. Um, and that said, in your car, except for Michael, who's unbelievably efficient in the car, on your way in to and from work, you're, you shouldn't be as efficient. So there's a couple variables that where commutes, I think, really do matter. Um, but I had a conversation with a banker uh, maybe a year or so ago that is a regional Dallas banker, has a pretty big team, and he said they were tracking through their fobs who was coming in and their loan production. And the people in the office five days a week were their highest producers. So that was, and, and with that, they were trying to encourage people to come back into the office. And I think like this Salesforce um, announcement yesterday was I think whatever they're looking at, which is, I don't know, probably some algorithms that <laughs> we wouldn't understand, but I think they're declaring, hey, we believe from our studies that again, I think it just gets back to every single firm's gonna be different and they're gonna have to figure it out along the way. But this is a really important topic, so I don't, if we, can we keep on this for just a second? Yes. Here's the other thing I would tell you. So um, it, I, I don't run a global firm that has 150,000 people. But if you ran a global firm that was all over, lots of 50 countries, every state in the United States, when the pandemic hits and at the end of 90 days, we decide, let's get back in the office and do what we do. Well, they're dealing with different COVID policies in different countries, in different states. 
And it's almost like, it, it, it literally, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to send our people back in. And so I think the big firms basically said, we're not sending you back in because it's not worth it to figure out all the varying policies and how we're going to deal with it. By the way, if you remember, we went through all these COVID starts and stops, right, all the way through, I think, fall of 21, so close to 18 months. So the big firms basically were kind of forced to keep their people out of the office for about 18 months, by and large, because it, it was just too difficult to manage all the different geographies. I, I think it takes six weeks to create a habit, right? So people were sitting at home for 18 months, so they created a habit. They created a life around that, whether it was around their spouses, their workout, their kids, whatever. And so what the big companies have been dealing with since, because remember, fall of 21 was when everybody was coming back to the office, right? They've been dealing with, they have these habits that have been created in their employees, and they're hard to break. Uh, it's not that the employees, I think, but for that 18 months would say, oh my God, I hate being in the office, I don't want to be there. They created a new habit, okay? Um, the other thing layered on that, which we all know, is we're in a 3.5% unemployment rate, and for all of you who are college educated, we're in a 0% unemployment rate. And so these CEOs also had their head of HR saying, man, don't do anything that's going to compound our labor problem. Mm -hmm. So they've been dealing with that as we went through this. Um, back to the productivity thing, and I think it relates to these big companies. I used to say, when it was rock and roll at the end of 21, start of 22, when your revenues are like this, you kind of ignore a lot of other things. And you say, oh, wow, our productivity is great because they substituted revenue growth for productivity, which are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. But it certainly makes you feel better when your revenues are doing great. And I, I really, I said back then, when we hit a patch of a slowdown, people are going to step back and say, are we really as productive? Because if you remember back then, everybody was saying, we're so productive working from home, this is phenomenal. And I think they were really substituting revenue growth for productivity. Um, so... I don't, I'm going to conclude where I started. I don't think we know the answer, uh, <laughs> other than for sure things have changed. One, one other thing I will say, and this gets back to the anthropologist, we, we care a ton about our people like as human beings, like their life. Like we want them to have meaning. We want them to, we think they're, by the way, if we're not altruistic, let's just say we're greedy. We think it makes them better for the firm, even though we think it's better for them. And so why wouldn't you come up with a hybrid model that helps them in their life and Therefore, they can feel better about what they're doing and having more meaning. And frankly, we think if they're together and we're doing the right thing in the office, there is meaning to being around their compatriots in the office. Um, like many of you, we've had several people get married that met at our office, right? I mean, it's just, it's just part of your life. I mean, if you're going to spend 40 of your waking hours working somewhere, um, I would tell you also, I, you know, we have a mental health crisis in our country. Yeah. Certainly working at home in your apartment by yourself is probably not good for your mental health. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some other dynamics that we're gonna is gonna flow through that we just don't know the the end game yet. And and I'm sorry to keep on this, but one thing one thing that I think is interesting that we found at Trimble Crow, and so for all the you know the the leaders in the room that that have companies or teams or whatever that are thinking about this for them, one of the things we were thinking about is. We truly believe we're better together at the Tremble Crow Company that we want to get back in. We enabled our market leaders to set the policy. We've got 20 offices in the US. They all said, come on back. Um, but what we did, which to me is, is more um, getting to, to Michael's comment about everybody's different and has their own circumstances, what we said was, let's find a solution to every reason not to come in. So there we have an office in the Northeast, and we had um, a really long commute for one employee. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. What if you came in at 10 a.m.? 
Is that, is the commute less? Oh yeah, it's less than half the time. It goes from an hour and 15 minutes to 30 minutes. Would you rather come in at 10? Yeah, great, come in at 10. That's it, hard stop. We don't even need to talk. Well, what about when I go home? I don't know, is three better? Is seven better? You, you pick, but having you there, the, the, for that one, it was if you're there from 10 to three, that's better than you not being there. Even with not that productive time in the car, we really, that's how strongly we believe in it. So I think that conversation has been ongoing. The employees in the past, I, I think the employers, broadly speaking, weren't as receptive to making, to being flexible in that regard to the dialysis or the commute or whatever the case may be. I think the, um, the savviest employers going forward are going to find those exceptions for, for literally every single employee. Agreed. The, the way this also rolls through to real estate is what he talked about is uh, employers are competing with the home, right? Yeah. And so they're trying to make the office better than the home. And that obviously relates to amenities. It relates to wellness. It relates to different variations of where you can work and how you can work. It relates to outdoor interaction and options. Um, I, I think it relates to food. Uh, you know, there's an element of bribery going on in terms of trying to get the employee back. And I think the employer realizes if I do this and they realize, wow, I kind of did like being around my teammates and I do feel more productive. And by the way, I'm getting promoted because I'm getting mentored and I'm learning more and I'm having those one-off conversations. I think they feel like they'll get the ball rolling. Not Again, not to tie people to their desk anymore, but right. to create some balance. Tickets are now on sale for this year's Young Guns Casino Night, which is coming up on Thursday, May 4th. Casino Night is Trek's premier spring networking event for young commercial real estate professionals here in Dallas, with proceeds benefiting the 2023 Young Guns Community Investors Project. Join us for an evening of casino-style gaming, music, and raffles with a groovy disco theme. Get your tickets with early bird pricing through April 2nd at recouncil.com backslash upcoming dash events. That's recouncil.com backslash upcoming dash events. Now, let's get back to our talk with Michael Dardick and Adam Sapphire. All right, let's get to another easy question um, and talk about lending. Um, how do we navigate the market with lenders on the sidelines? When do you think lending will uh, break free? Do you have any insights on fed rate, fed rate hikes that may remain where long-term uh, rates will end up. And then I also wanted to talk to you about how this is affecting your development strategies and your uh, return assessments, kind of what, um, what adjustments you're making. So let's switch our focus to lending and development. Michael, would you start? It's screwed up. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal in our business. Um, you know, it's why, frankly, there's been really little transaction activity since mid or fall of last year uh, because capital costs change values. And it's both a cost and availability problem. It's both of those problems. Um, it goes back to the Fed raising so quickly and, and not knowing the end game. Um, so I think it's really problematic. I would say on existing assets, on the best of the best office, there is capital available for that. It's at a lower leverage rate. Maybe it's 55%. It's at a higher cost. I think on the best of the best, there's lenders in this room who will probably disagree with me. Call it a 200 spread. Your industry's gone up, so it's maybe your borrowing cost has gone up 300 basis points. A lot, right? Um, you, when you get to tougher office, really hard. I mean, availability's hard. And, and now your spreads are at 400 plus and your industry's up. So 
on the tougher office, you went from a year ago being a 5 to 6% all-in rate to 10, right? That, that has a direct impact on value if you're the new buyer and you're thinking about what kind of returns you want. Um, so existing, it's there. It's very bifurcated by quality. Um, remember, the other thing we're really on the front end of, I do think the lending community is going to deal with uh, loan problems on the tougher real estate. Um, it always happens. Uh, but as we talked about with the flight to quality, I think, you know, call it the bottom third of the office pile, I think it's going to be really tough. And I think when you think about how banks work, you know, they have a cost of capital. Their job is to churn capital, make loans, get paid back, get it back out. And they're going to get stuck where assets, uh, loans are not going to be able to be renewed. They're not going to be able to be paid down. They're either going to take them back or they're going to be stuck in a state of limbo. That doesn't make them feel good and or their regulators to make new loans. So I think that's a problem that's coming that we haven't seen a lot yet. Um, on the new development side, we, we've seen virtually no, you, you do it across the country, so you'll know more than me, but we haven't seen much spec new development started since middle of last year. I think it's mostly this capital availability problem. I think there's a little bit of, you know, if you're doing a spec development, you are prognosticating rent growth and lease up. And when you're in an economy that's moving sideways, it's a little harder to make that prognostication. So um, I think we've seen some examples of some deals. You know, it used to be, you know, if you were 50% pre-lease, you could debt service coverage a 55% loan, which is what lenders care about, right? Today, with the cost of interest rates and the cost of construction, I, I don't even know. You know, if you're 30 to 40% lease, if you could even get a loan, is it 30 to 40%? And when you start to think about that, that means your loan is nothing but good news money. Since you have to fund your equity first, you are building the building all cash, and as you get leasing, the lender's going to do it. So it's a math problem for the equity side. So um, I do think on existing assets, one of the solutions to lending is going to be seller financing. Mm -hmm. Now, there's only a certain amount of owners that can do that. But I think on some of these deals, to make it happen for a while, it's going to require seller financing. Okay. What are you seeing, Adam? Yeah, a, a lot of the same. So I think the biggest challenge right now is availability of capital for office. What's interesting is in 08 and 09, there was no liquidity. There were, think of banks getting TARP federal assistance, right? Banks were getting bailed out by the government. So they not only didn't have money, they needed money. Right? So there, was, there were no loans for a spec office building, no way, no night. Today, the banks are fine. They have money. They are more selective than I've ever seen them. Um, and maybe to put some numbers to what he said, so, so think about a new construction project, a traditional bank, and there's different pockets of construction loans, but a traditional lender uh, used to have a debt yield requirement that was a lot lower. So now they need it at 10% or above, typically above 10% yield on their debt from the rent in place. So to translate that, that gets to the, exactly what he just said. If you've got a pre-lease for a tenant of half the building, which for the last 12 years was more than enough to kick off a deal if it was in a great location, and it's an 8% yield, which historically has been a very robust yield for your anchor tenant, the math says that the lender is going to give 40% or less loan to cost on the project, regardless of how great that tenant's credit is. So that's the 30, 40% you were, you were talking about, right? So there's other pockets of capital, debt funds and pension funds and others that um, go to the other end of the spectrum where I actually think if you have a smaller size deal that he says the best of the best, I mean, if it's that amazing of a magnet, the best site in all of Dallas, whatever we want to call it, 
I think there's actually capital that you could pre-lease, have zero pre-leasing. You could actually do a spec deal. Now, those funds are gonna be at a much different five to 700 bips over SOFR, which is you know, gonna get you to 10 to 12% to start and, and going up kind of rates. But, um, but again, I think, I think the real issue is the um, availability. Um, and maybe we'll just talk about rates real quick and what, what that impact is. So I think of two, when we think about the rates going up and everybody's talking about the Fed funds rate and what does that mean, and, and that's primarily the discussion, is about the Fed, and I don't know if you saw the market yesterday or heard Powell's comments yesterday. Um, by the way, there was nothing new <laughs> in what he said. Um, but everybody's talking about the, the short end. I think it's worth talking about two ends of the spectrum. One is the short end, which we talk about the Fed funds rate, which is a range between four and a half and four and three quarters percent. The reason everybody's talking about that is for our industry, we borrow typically on floating rate loans that are a bank's margin or profit, that's a spread, two to 300 basis points, over SOFR, the secured overnight financing rate. SOFR is ultimately backed by treasuries, which is why it's, it's tied to the Fed funds rate. So that, that's the connection. So SOFR today, I think yesterday was four, five, five. It's, it's gonna be in that Fed funds rate. So that's the floating part of a floating rate loan. So a year and a half ago or so, that was less than a quarter of a percent. So that all-in rate on your construction loan was about 3%. Today it's approaching 8% and we're still going. To hit one question, my personal view, rates are going to be longer and higher. Whatever the market's saying, whatever you're thinking, my belief is longer and higher. We're going to go well through 5%, 6% not out of the question, summer of 24, in my opinion, before we have any relief. Um, hope I'm wrong, by the way. Um, so, but, but if you think about that rate on, on our existing projects that are floating, and we've got billions of dollars of construction loans at Trammell Crow Company, most of it, unless it was hedged with a cap or a swap, which some of ours is, but a lot of that cost on existing assets and for new construction loans, the cost is up, the interest line. To me, that's not as impactful for new construction, having one line item in the budget, the interest line go up, even though it's meaningful, that's not what's going to prohibit office development. It's more the selectivity from equity and office going up. And part of that selectivity then leads us to the longer end of the curve. So the 10-year treasury, which I think is the most important single rate of anything in for all of commercial real estate, the 10-year treasury is about 4%. If uh, Michael was to sell any of his beautiful buildings, the buyer uh, likely would put on 5 to 10-year debt uh, and the five and 10 year treasury is, is, is relatively flat. Um, the 10 year used to be about a one and a half percent, not too long ago, a couple years ago. So insurance companies um, give loans for Granite Park or you know, pick, pick the example of some class A project. And it used to be about 170 bips over the 10 year was a 10 year interest only loan that a buyer could put on his assets. So if, if the 10-year was 1.5%, and that spread is what an insurance company is going to give a buyer, we're a little over 3%. That's how cap rates for all product types got so low, is because the positive leverage was based on almost a 3% return, if that makes sense. If the 10-year's at 4, and now the, the um, lender needs a little more margin, let's keep it simple and say it's 200 basis points. So that same loan is now at 6%. The buyer coming in, if, if the cap rate goes below a six on pretty much any asset, that means the buyer's having negative leverage. They have to use some of their equity return just to pay the debt down. So there's a psychology right now, in my opinion, for office where that longer-term financing is a bit of a 
uh, barometer of where the cap rate's gonna be, which means I think values have diminished pretty significantly in office. Cap rate's up 150, 200 bips for great office and maybe maybe more for others. So anyway, we're at Crow, we're, we're watching the whole thing. Everybody's talking about the front end. I think it's really important for all of us to focus on where those longer term rates are, which by the way are expectations of inflation. All of it going up means most believe the Fed is not that close to controlling inflation and that we're gonna have a pretty significant challenge. So before I add to that, could you just say one positive thing today? Just, just come up with. It doesn't even have to be about real estate. Okay, this is serious. You hey, can say anything this positive is serious. you'd like. This is serious, Michael. You look great today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, wow, that was a lot. Um, yeah, most people are not betting that the Fed's going to reduce the short term today. And you're right, the short versus long is a different. Uh, who knows? Everybody seems to think 24 something will happen. I will say this, uh, you know, what goes up comes down. It went up really fast. There's a chance that they overshoot, and it could have to come down very fast when it happens. Now, that's the short rate, uh, which is a lot of the borrowing in commercial real estate for sure on um, development. Um, the, the long end of the curve, you're exactly right. The 10-year, which normally you're going to price your actual values off of, you know, sat down at one and a half. That was a ridiculous number. It was great for us. It drove a lot of fantastic profits. I think most people would tell you it feels like that normalization is threes, you know, mid threes, maybe high threes. Um, it's a little higher than that now. Uh, and you add a spread to that, and you've got, you know, normalized cap rates of five and a half, you know, not four, seven, five, or four. It's a bigger problem for the multifamily and industrial business than our business. You should have said that. That would have been a positive statement. That's it. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just arcane weird stuff that happens in this because we never used to really worry about cap, uh, caps on your financing, right? We, a lender would tell you to, basically they're protecting themselves, right? They make you a loan and your loan's at 5% with everything included in it and they, the debt service coverage, they do their math and they say, wow, if this gets to 8%, it's a problem for us. So they say, buy me a cap at eight. Well, it's so out of market, you'd spend 50,000 hours on it, you wouldn't even think about it. It was like, it was not an asset. It was some liability, you spent 50,000, it was insurance, right? Yep. Um, now, caps are several million bucks, and by the way, I'm so happy, we, we, it's the first time in my life we've used caps on three deals in a big way, and it's saving us a lot of money, but what you have to think about is, you know, usually you're buying a two-year cap. Depending on how long this goes, you know, you're going to have to do, redo that cap. So there, there's weird stuff going on. Uh, it, the net net is, Interest rates are an enormous problem for a capital-intensive business. And lenders are requiring caps, almost all of them, especially for office. And we saw that uh, in late 07, early 08, as we were going to the last downturn. And, and, then, and then it's... So you think, by the way, you made a comment I totally agree with. Scale matters. Uh, bigger loans are definitely a bigger problem. And a lot of this has to do with uh, most of these institutions syndicate because they don't want to carry it on their book. And nobody wants to be in a syndication now on these bigger deals. So they're definitely harder. But you think you could get a spec development that was smaller finance today? And actually, Office. Yeah, and I think you could do it at like 55, 60%, maybe even non-recourse. And I'll, well, there's I'll, your positive. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'll, All right, I'll well, tell you who those lenders are. Later. By the way, the debt funds, they also have a problem. You know, you used to be able to just go to the debt funds, and it was just a higher cost of capital, but it was available. But remember, they finance their book. So they use a collateralized loan obligation or something else to finance their book, so they're gummed up as well. 
So, I mean, just to be honest, the groups we're talking to, and we're doing it in other product types, but we're starting to borrow from the equivalent of pension funds um, from other countries. Yeah. And, and just, they're just in a totally different I agree place. So it, it's, not even, it's not even the US. They government. don't have the same regulations, which right. is a big deal for our banks. Right. Well, we didn't get to every single question, but I'm really happy to say that you guys covered a lot of the topics that were part of the other questions, like values and releasing. So thank you for that. I know you have a, a flight to, uh, a plane to catch. So let's uh, limit it to just two to three minutes of questions and answers. Does anybody have, have one that they'd like to shout out? And if not, I have one last one. Okay. I'm sure one of the questions that you had on your list that you didn't get to was about office conversion to multifamily. I think that's a topic that's on everybody's mind right now. So just want to get y'all's general thoughts on that. I know that you, know, you guys are not in the business of multifamily. Maybe you might want to bury your heads in the sand on that one, but I um, just want to get your general thoughts and how prolific you think that might be in this down cycle. There, there's about 4 million square feet of uh, resident, residential and hotel uh, conversions uh, absorbing office space downtown. That's what we have. I think it's a it's an important uh, move to the next part of the cycle, if you will. Number one, you've got some real estate that ops, that's obsolete. Let's just talk about a suburban B building, right? Um, but I think there's a lot of not just in Dallas. They they are in Dallas, but in in these uh, urban areas around the country, there are a lot of old towers that are a million square feet that are not where people want to office anymore, and or the demand is such that. Maybe it should be a 300,000-foot building, but you can't get rid of the other 700,000 feet. So repurposing that, uh, you know, downtown, what happened uh, with uh, Thompson and, you know, that whole hotel and, and Resi conversion was great. Uh, Jonas Woods, I know, has three or four deals that he's redoing, which are these big obsolete towers where you're basically trying to break the tower down to, from a million square feet to 300,000 feet of office. Um, I don't know anything about the math. Jonas will tell you you've got to factor in a 30% loss factor because, you know, you, you, if you're living in an apartment, like being in the interior of a building doesn't really work, and so you really got to almost cut the, the hole of the donut out of the interior of the building, and so that's a 30% loss factor. And then you've got to get into, do I have the right elevatoring? Can I separate uses? Do I have the right plumbing, lighting, air, blah, 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 windows? But, but yeah, it's happening and I think it's great. I think for our downtown, to add more resi that's more affordable um, would be great. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great question. I, I agree with all that. Um, just quickly on that loss factor. So BOMA also calculates net rentable differently for residential and that's a big part of that loss. Um, so think about the hallway, the Z corridor that turns into the hallway. That goes from rentable basically to not, if that makes sense. Um, there's about 85 conversions office to multifamily that we track. We, we are a uh, pretty big uh, multifamily developer. And uh, interestingly, in terms of office, so we, Tremble Crow, I joined the company in 05. We developed, on average, three spec and three build-a-suits in office per year until COVID. And we're still doing build-a-suits. We've, we've started one spec office since then as part of a mixed-use tower. Um, but for the first time since I've been with the company, our multifamily business is a lot bigger than the office. Office usually, in large part, just because the dollar per foot's more. But, um, but we're tracking 85 across the country. That's about double what it's been for the, for the decade before each year for the country. So, so in, in reality, not that many buildings are actually getting done. Um, the challenges, you, you hit on quite a few. I'm not even gonna get into all the challenges with it. I'll just get to the punchline, which is it's just really hard for us to make it pencil. 
it's, it's, I guess the easy way to think is we basically get to the land value is what we can typically pay for regardless of the size of the building. Office owners <laughs> aren't quite there uh, today. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. I think the other big unknown is what's the residual value? Is there a buyer pool that will pay, for instance, the same cap rates versus new construction? So ultimately, what's it worth? These are all unknowns. I think we're gonna find out a lot more in the next couple of years as people uh, lease these projects up and then, and then go to sell them. Well, uh, as a downtown resident, I can tell you it's super exciting to see uh, all of the activity that's going on. Not a fan of the big uh, rate increases, but you know. Um, you guys, thank you uh, so much for sharing your incredible insights with us, with us this morning. Can we please give a round of applause to these two gentlemen? Um, we will get you out of here and on your way. Um, thank, you, thank you again so much. And safe travels, Michael. Okay, and now, are you ready, Reno? You coming up to uh, to close the show, help close the show? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, well, hello, everyone. Reena Parikh. I'm a partner and also one of the leaders of our real estate practice here in Dallas for Grand Thornton. I wanted to say, uh, you know, thank Trek for putting together this program and also kind of all both our panelists. Uh, what a great comments that were made on the office space. Uh, I can definitely say we, I can directly correlate to Grant Thornton, you know, with we being a you know, national firm and running different offices. Uh, we are seeing a clear trend of more and more in-person being chosen by our people as uh, they are realizing the value of being in-person. So I uh, really appreciate all the remarks that were made. Um, uh, I'm going to take an opportunity to thank Trek for putting together this program. Uh, myself and some of my colleagues here from Grand Thornton, uh, our proud sponsor of Trek Market Matters program. Um, just a few words on Grand Thornton. Um, you know, we are a network of independent audit, tax, and advisory firm. Uh, you know, made up of 50,000 people across 130 countries. Um, at Grand Thornton, uh, we believe in making business more personal. Uh, and building trust in everything we do. Uh, so whether you are looking to grow your business, you know, manage risk or manage your regulations, uh, you know, our professionals are available locally and nationally. Uh, once again, uh, we are pleased to support Real Estate Council in producing this program. And with that, I'll hand over to Linda. Just a couple quick comments. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. It was a great program on office. I think all of us are really curious about what's happening. Uh, I will tell you, our office has been back in pretty much full on as soon as we could be. And that's because we're a membership organization and we want you to come visit us. Uh, we want to make sure that you have an opportunity to engage. Uh, we really appreciate the support of Grant Thornton. Thank you so much for being a continuous supporter. And Christine, you're the best. DCO is a great partner. We're really happy to have you. Uh, don't forget the things that Mike mentioned at the beginning. Fight night if you not, have not bought your sponsorship or your table. We really are going to have an amazing event again this year, so don't miss out. Uh, Dallas City Council and Mayor elections. This is a really critical election. All seats are up. So if you're not engaged and you are a resident of the city of Dallas or you do business in the city of Dallas, this is an important election. We want you to be engaged because we're working every single day at City Hall uh, to really make things better for the development community. And lastly, I know a lot of you are mentors, want to mentor. We appreciate your involvement in our mentoring program. Uh, we have a great program, as Bill teased us for May, 
I can't tell you either. I've been sworn to secrecy. So stay tuned. We have a lot of great programs to engage you this year. And thank you so much for being here this morning. Have a great day. That'll do it for today's show. I'd like to thank Christine Perez, Michael Dardick, and Adam Sapphire for joining us to talk about the state of the office market. I'd also like to recognize our Market Matters sponsors, Grant Thornton, DPR Construction, Global Pro, and DCEO. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, follow us on YouTube and social media, and get your tickets for our May 4th Young Guns Casino Night. You'll find more information in the show notes or on the blog page for this episode. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.